Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, everyone. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Have you all heard of revenge travel? No, I'm not sure I agree with the term, but it basically is what happens when you have this pent up demand for travel that so many are taking right now since the pandemic. Now, while I don't particularly like the term, as I said before, I can tell you that I've been busy and so have my fellow travel professionals. Everyone I speak to is busy and a bit overwhelmed. So since January this year, let me just give you a rundown of what I've been doing. I've had three groups to Dubai. One did an extension to the Maldives. I had a group to Italy, two groups to Egypt, multiple individual trips and extensions. And upcoming, I have a group to Spain and Morocco, and New York and Ghana and South Africa coming up between now and March of 2023. So that in itself should really tell you what this revenge travel is all about or how much pent up demand folks have had and wanting to travel after all. For some of us, it's been two years or better. Some people haven't even returned to travel yet. So I want to know what you've been up to. Let me know if you've been traveling since 2022, where you've gone. You can do that on our social media channels, or you can email me and I can share it because I think that we're getting it all out of our system, but we're never letting up. That's certainly one thing about it. So many people were taking those trips that they canceled during 2020 and 2021. And some, you know, are just saying, hey, YOLO. <laughs> you only live once. Well, I am taking it all in stride and looking forward to the upcoming trips and things that we have. Too late for Spain and Morocco. However, if you want to join me to New York, I have a fabulous trip planned. We are going November 9th through the 13th, going to see MJ the Musical, which I hear is fabulous. We're also going to do a Black History Tour of Harlem and a Black History Tour visiting the African Burial Ground and Museum. And we're also going to do a Black Heritage Tasting Tour of Brooklyn. I'm really looking forward to that one. So if you want to join, just visit the website, TravelingCulturati.com. We also have Ghana coming up with the Michael Baston Travel Club in February and already sold out. The Michael Baston Travel Club is also going to South Africa, going to the Cape Town Jazz Festival as well. So... Today, we are having a conversation, a very intimate conversation with author of Black Girl in Spain, Joy Glenn. She's sharing her experience as an expat, her cultural differences, and how her mentality towards life changed living abroad. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and The Culture Report. I'm chatting with the director at the Pullman Porter Museum. Yeah, you want to stay tuned for that. But right now, I've got a bit of travel news. Well, Sheila Johnson is back at it again. She has put down $140 million for a hotel in Washington, D.C. Yes, Sheila Johnson, the multi-million dollar investment represents the most recent notable hotel acquisition in the region. 
following its most recent acquisition of the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Washington, D.C. The Salamander Resorts hotel chain now has that property. With the most recent growth, creator and CEO, Sheila Johnson's longtime desire has been realized. Johnson is also a managing partner of the Washington Mystics, the Wizards and Capitals, and she was the co-founder of Black Entertainment Television. Overall, the purchase has personal meaning for the black lady millionaire, as well as because she lived close to the wharf for a number of years. About 50 miles from Washington, D.C., Johnson's flagship resort in Middlesburg, Virginia, is a key component of a larger plan to create a town and country fusion between the two establishments. Visitors would essentially have the option of choosing between the aesthetics of a bustling city life or tranquil country style living. While the National Mall and Audi Field are right outside your door in DC, horseback riding and wine country tasting and wine tasting are both possible pastimes in Virginia. In addition, Henderson Park, a partner in Johnson's private equity business, assisted in the $140 million acquisition. The Maryland Avenue Hotel has 373 luxury rooms, and so kudos to Sheila Johnson in her acquisition and growing the Salamander Resorts and Hotels. Now, according to a website, Atlanta, one of the most unfaithful cities in the U.S., there was a poll and study done to determine the most faithful and unfaithful cities in America. Atlanta had a 47% marriage rate and a 9% divorce rate. The separation rate in Atlanta was reported to be 2%. The number of locations where people can meet up for affairs, Google searches for the word affair, and the affair hookup website, Ashley Madison, were all taken into account in the ranking algorithm. So here you go. America's 10 most unfaithful cities in America. Topping the list is Dallas, Texas, Fort Worth, Texas, Houston, Texas. Oh boy, what's going on, Texas? St. Louis, Missouri, Nashville, Philadelphia, New York, Knoxville, Atlanta, and Washington, D.C. Yes. Now the 10 most faithful cities in America are Pasadena, Torrance, Roseville, Visalia, all in California, Montgomery, Alabama, Orange County, California, West Valley City, Utah, McAllen, Texas, Syracuse, New York. American Airlines and JetBlue flights are now expanding to Havana. The Transportation Department announced on Monday that the Biden administration will increase U.S. flights to Havana by adding 13 weekly American Airlines departures from Miami and a weekly JetBlue departure from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. This is in addition to the regular three weekday JetBlue flights and six daily American Airlines flights from Florida airports to Havana. The flights must start by mid-December, according to U.S. Department of Transportation. The government eased a number of flight restrictions to Cuba in June, including the ban on American Airlines flying to minor Cuban airports outside of Havana. Well, holiday travel 
and airfares are going to be the most expensive in five years. Yes, so prepare to pay more if you want to travel during Christmas and or Thanksgiving. According to fare tracker website Hopper, holiday travel will be the most expensive in five years. In comparison to 2019, before the COVID epidemic, the average domestic round trip cost for travel around Thanksgiving was $350 and the average foreign round trip airfare $795. Both represent a 22% rise, according to Hopper. According to Hopper's research, domestic round trip prices for Christmas, which falls on the weekend this year, are roughly a third more expensive than in 2019, averaging $463, while prices for overseas travel are up 26% averaging $1,300. Peak demand days, such as Wednesday before Thanksgiving or the days preceding Christmas, always result in increased travel costs. Travel professionals advise being flexible and avoiding the busiest days of travel. Holiday travel should be booked no later than mid-October, according to Hopper's head economist, Haley Berg, who also advised that you should book if you find a fantastic deal or even a price that seems reasonable to you. There are four international airports that have been added to TSA PreCheck program. Now, this is very important because currently most non-U.S. flag carriers do not have the TSA PreCheck program, which means even if you have TSA PreCheck, that logo is not going to be printed on your boarding pass and therefore you cannot use that lane. These airlines are Air Europa, Flair, Volaris El Salvador, and ITA Airways. ITA is Italy's new airline replacing Alitalia, all of which run flights to and from the United States. They've announced a pre-check program extension along with Transportation Security Administration. When leaving from U.S. airports on domestic or international flights or from Nassau, Bahamas, and after returning to the United States for connecting domestic flights, TSA PreCheck is accessible to eligible travelers. Existing members can renew online for $70 for an extra five years, up to six months before their membership is set to expire. When new applicants are accepted, they are given a special known traveler number, or you may see it in short, KTN. That entitles them to use pre-check lanes at airport security checkpoints. Again, just remember that it has to have that logo on the ticket or on your boarding pass. Now, this story is certainly <laughs> one to think about. I learn something new every day. It certainly is in that category. Well, have you heard about these fights or brawls that have broken out on cruise ships a lot of them have been on carnival cruise lines and people you know tiktok and social media i just love them they have been dubbing carnival cruise lines the spirit airlines of the cruise industry well there's certainly a few brawls that are circulating on tiktok videos and you see just like a melee of fights sometimes it starts just between a couple of people and then grows from there well it's also been revealed on TikTok that some of these fights have broken out because these are swinging events gone wrong. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, couples that swing, swingers that hang out together and I guess swingers because they swing from one partner to the other or couples that play together. <laughs> 
Well, apparently, it's being said that loose lips wreck ships. <laughs> Threesomes start at about 5 a.m. on Carnival Cruise Line mega brawls involving 60 people, the story reads. They were informed about a significant nightclub brawl that occurred this week on board cruise ship sailing to New York City and was caused by a swinging episode that went wrong. And so it's been revealed that if you're on a cruise ship and you see a pineapple symbol hanging upside down, it means that you want to swing. (laughs) I didn't know that. The term pineapple on board a cruise and occasionally on land refers to swinging or wife swapping. The presence of a pineapple on a cruise ship's door hanging upside down indicates that the passengers are open to socializing with other couples for adult entertainment. That's a better way to put it, isn't it? (laughs) But is it necessary to turn the pineapple upside down? Should it be on the door or not? Well, there were some searches done on cruising forums and the Swinger Facebook groups, Reddit, and other websites to get definitive answers on this issue. So what does an upside down pineapple mean? Swingers use pineapples as a covert means of communication. Someone who is actively looking for a partner swap will be sporting an upside down pineapple emblem or pin. I'm certainly going to be more aware of it, but if you have a symbol of a pineapple, especially upside down on your door on a cruise ship or at a hotel, that's an invitation to say, yes, I want to have a swinging party. (laughs) Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, I'm going to have a conversation with author of Black Girl in Spain, Joy Glenn. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, travelingculturati.com, so you can connect with me on social media and you can join that travel club because travel is back in full effect. I'm telling you, I have been so busy this year that it's unbelievable. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. I've been traveling a lot this year, and during this time, COVID protocols have changed and are still changing. Many COVID protocols and travel restrictions have been lifted and or eliminated altogether. Even countries that previously required vaccination have removed the requirement. However, some protocols are still in place, so it's important that you check the country's site for updated information and check it often. The other thing to remember is that COVID is not a thing of the past, and it's highly recommended that you still take precaution. Here's what you should know and do now. Some countries have lifted all COVID travel restrictions. Many countries that no longer require a negative COVID test may still require that you are fully vaccinated. The definition of fully vaccinated can differ by country, and many have placed a minimum and maximum period on that vaccination. For example, must have had all doses no less than 14 days prior to your arrival and no more 
than four months prior to your arrival. This means you may have to have a booster. Some institutes at the destination may still require that you wear a mask to enter. Therefore, it's important that you travel with a supply of masks and keep them with you when you're out and about. It's highly recommended, and in some countries, it may even be mandatory to have travel insurance or international health insurance. All in all, COVID is still here, and as we come upon the fall and winter season, some restrictions may reappear. Stay up to date and continue to take precautions and stay healthy. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. I'm super excited about today because I'm always excited when I meet someone who has the same passion for travel that I do and is set out on a quest to see the world and is also very adventurous in their travel experiences. I'm talking to Joy Glenn, native of West Palm Beach, Florida, and a member of the armed forces. So we have to say thank you so much for being a member of the armed forces and also an expat. She's an author, an avid traveler. Please welcome Joy Glenn to the show. Hello, Joy. And thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Javon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. I feel honored. Absolutely. It is an honor and a pleasure because, especially as an African-American, and I know people may say, well, why do we have to say that? But I think that our experiences at home and abroad can, Mm -hmm. you know, differ a bit. So we do. But I always like to ask everyone, what sparked your wanderlust? Right. No, that's actually a great question. I feel like it came from a number of things, would say, and that would be mainly my life experiences. I am a veteran, so I am a prior military, as you mentioned, and I had previous experiences and previous to my military background, we had lived overseas before, and I had gotten a little taste of traveling, involving yourself in other cultures. So in 2014, I don't know, I just had like this weird, the best way I can describe it as is a weird intuition to just leave America But at the time, my husband was still in the military and my youngest child was only two months old. But I just had this weird intuition, I guess you could say. And then I got passports for my family and our kids. And it was two years later that we actually ended up moving to Spain. So the answer to your question would be a few things. But the main thing was just the intuition of, okay, it's time to change. Wow. So you didn't have a prior experience in just travel in general when you were younger or leading up to that period? No, not besides my military experience. No. Growing up, we traveled all throughout the United States, but never mm-hmm. overseas. So yeah, it was a recent, I guess you could say, intuition or feeling to just, okay, we need a change. Yeah. And you jumped in the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's the only way to do it. So I want to talk about the armed forces too, because I think that that in itself, I mean, of course, there's the protect and serve. And again, thank you so much. But that also takes you outside of the United States. So what was your decision to join the armed forces and what branch? I served seven years in the United States Air Force. And what sparked that decision was a common decision amongst young Americans I was 18, going on 19, and I knew I wanted to go to school, 
but I knew I didn't want to pay a bunch of college loans. I joined the military for the career opportunity and the schooling opportunity. And so that's what drove me to serve. Well, it certainly makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially here in the United States, that education is so expensive and it's really becoming detrimental to one's livelihood and career choices because you're going to spend at least the first 10 years of your adult life after college repaying loans, if not longer than that. So it's a very smart decision and it's a very brave decision because again, we can't ignore the fact that it is to protect and to serve. This is a little bit of a sidebar, but it brings a thought to me because we're Mm -hmm. suffering right now in the travel industry or the airlines are suffering because of a looming pilot shortage. And Mm -hmm. historically pilots used to come from the air force after people Mm -hmm. left the service would become commercial pilots. And that's not happening as fast or as often. Did you pilot at all? No, I was actually logistics. So I was more of the administrative section, but I did know a lot of pilots and I actually know someone who actually became a pilot. Exactly what you said. He came out of the Air Force and he became a pilot. But no, my career field was a little bit different then. You said earlier that you had this overwhelming feeling to become an expat, to go to another country, to actually live in another country. What was that feeling and what brought you to that decision? Well, I will say this, as I mentioned before, due to our military background. So shortly after I joined the military, I met my husband, we got married. And then years later, we had our first child. So we had lived in Turkey before. We had multiple deployments to different countries. And so We've had experiences of living abroad and traveling overseas. And once you get that taste of not just living overseas or just visiting and going to the tourist commercial parks, but actually delving yourself into another culture and another place, it literally changes your life forever. It changes your perspective on life. And then it kind of opens and broadens our way of thinking. And then that's what I feel like was the beginning of that spark. Say, hey, you know. A lot of people say the American dream, and that's great and all. We had a great life in America, but God just worked it out. And, you know, a lot of times people do that after they retire or later in their years, and it's a decision for themselves. But you did so with a family and with small children. So that's very interesting. And it also sparked you to write the book, Spain Through the Eyes of a Black American woman. And it's described as a compelling book that tells riveting and intimate stories of the author and her family's transition from Southern America to a foreign country. So in your opinion, how does Spain differ through the eyes of a Black woman? It differs in the aspect of it's a multiple dimensional difference, because not only am I American, but I am a Black American. And so that comes with its own set of cultures, its own set of eyes, its own set of point of view. And so in light of all the current events that's happening, you know, our people are suffering as just a black race. I don't really quite know what it is, but I feel like we've been under this cloud. And I feel like the only way to get out of this racial injustice is to kind of speak up. And this was my way of kind of having my little voice to say, hey, My voice is important and our story is important. Really so. In seeing it that way and actually being in another country, and even your experiences while you were in the Mm -hmm. Air Force, did you feel that 
you were received differently versus feeling how you were received in another country. Absolutely. You can absolutely feel how you're received and perceived. And there are multiple things you can do about that, but it varies. There were similarities between the way that we were viewed in Turkey than in Spain. I can give you some examples. Well, sure. Please do. Absolutely. That's what we're here for. Because anyone who's maybe thinking about it or becoming an expat or even an experience with just traveling to a destination as a tourist who may be having some feelings about, well, how do I do that? And what is that feeling going to be like for me? Right. When you decide to move to a different country and delve yourself into a different country, it definitely feels as if you're in a different world because in a sense you are. And so when you take it with that approach, it's almost like you're watching a movie or a film and just kind of enjoy it, enjoy that ride, enjoy that way. But one of the common things we get is a stare. People stare at us here in Spain, but it was actually really intense in Turkey as well. People would just grab us to take pictures, almost like we were celebrities. Here in Spain is not as bad, but they stare a lot. Now, in general, this culture, they are staring people. They are very inquisitive and it's not considered rude to literally just stare. But I feel like us being Black Americans definitely adds to that. So we've had incidents of people trying to touch our hair. That was one of the first things I had to learn how to say was please don't touch our hair because just differences in culture, once again, because in a Black American culture, it's almost like disrespectful to touch our hair, especially without permission. But here it's normal. So, you know, just differences like that. And I do feel like Spain, there's a lack of diversity here. And due to that lack of diversity, there is a lack of knowledge, not in a bad way, but just in the sense of a lack of knowledge about other cultures. But that's why I say my husband and I and our family are we're here to teach and we're also here to learn. Right. And this hair business because I have natural hair. Actually, I've been natural for more than 30 years. Oh, wow. And so I'm happy to see now that there's so many that are natural as well. But when I went natural, not many were. And I would even have Black women, American women say to me, but it looks nice on you, but I couldn't. But now it's so embraced. It is. And it's almost like an army of natural women. <laughs> you know? I love it. I noticed a big shift. So there's two things, and I won't digress too much, but I want to come back to the comment that you made with the touching of the hair. But I noticed uh-huh. two things, and this is very, very interesting, and I might even get in a little trouble for making this statement, but it is my own <laughs> personal experience. So, okay. And it happened to me several times when I went natural. I noticed that men who are not Black were very intrigued by it. And I would get more compliments, more date requests, even though I'm married, so I wasn't accepting them. But, you know, the the attention from men who were not Black when I had my hair natural. Whenever Mm -hmm. I would blow it out and straighten it, the opposite would happen. That is interesting, but I think that has a lot to do with the mentality of what is someone's definition of beauty. Yeah, it's very interesting. There was a difference in how other Black women related to me as well. That's another story for another show, but we can talk about that too. But the touching of the hair, whether it's American or outside of America, this idea that you can invade someone's space, because I don't think 
they would do it to each other, even if someone had a hairstyle that was maybe a unique hairstyle. They wouldn't do it if the person wasn't a person of color. But this idea that you can invade someone's space when they are a person of color says something else to me as well. And I have experienced that Mm. in other countries. I've even experienced that in Hawaii. I remember when I first started going natural and I had my hair in braids and I was lying on the beach and I saw this shadow because I'm sunning and I saw this shadow and I opened my eyes, someone standing over me taking a picture. (laughs) What is going on? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's very interesting. So as a family dynamic, what other things were happening in the space of being an expat and specifically for you in Spain? That was one of the great things I loved. I love learning and I love writing. And so just my day-to-day schedules of dropping the kids off at school, then I will have lunch with some of the other mothers in the school. And most of all the mothers that I will have lunch with or breakfast with, they did not know any English. They didn't speak any English. And so that forced me to learn. It forced me to have to kind of learn to kind of survive. And that was a beautiful journey in itself of just sitting down, memorizing words, them helping me. I'm writing notes down. It just has been such a beautiful journey. Watching our children integrate with the children and them learning and picking it up so quickly because see, now me and my husband, we're not fluent yet, but our children are fluent and they love their school. They're doing so great. They're thriving. And so that makes us very happy. You bring up your children because there's a post that I came across of yours that said what I see versus what my children see. I wanted to talk about that lens. I mean, we know that, yeah, children have a different lens than we do because they haven't been as impacted by their environment as we have been. And that happens as we mature. So how was that lens different? How did that differ between what you saw and what your children saw, especially relocating to another country? And what ages were they? And are they now? We have three children. And we first moved here in 2008 to Spain. Abby is our youngest. She was two. Aaron, our second child, was four. And then Amari, our oldest, was only eight years old. So now they are 12, eight, and six. And The lens thing, I feel like it was almost like a blessing because we talk a lot about generational trauma, especially within the Black American community of all the injustices and things like that. One common thing that is seen here in Spain is the KKK. It's not the group, the KKK, but there's a very special and sacred tradition that they have every year where those roles that the KKK use in America, they actually got from the Spaniards. And so when a lot of Black Americans our age, like my, I'm 36, they'll get frightened or they'll have some type of apprehension seeing that hoodie, that pointing hood, just because there's that emotional trauma there. But when my children see the hooded, they don't know anything about the KKK. They never learned anything about that. They just see a Spanish tradition that is fun and beautiful and sacred. And so that was what that particular blog was about. I felt so happy realizing that generational trauma that my children will have nothing to do with or not experience at all. So the lens are different, but in a great, great way. 
So what is the difference between, and, and is it called KKK there, or is it just no. the, the hoods and the appearance of it? So what it's are we just talking about here when we're making that comparison? We are talking about, and I guess I have to send you the blog, but we're talking about a tradition called Semana Santa, meaning the weeks of the saints. It's actually a religious Catholic tradition that each city and town during that entire week, the families, they get together and there's a parade. And the parade carries, I'm not supposed to call it a statue, but that's the English word, but there's another word for it. But they're carrying this religious image throughout the streets and everybody's coming out and watching. And it's a beautiful thing. So the hooded members, they're called brotherhoods. There's different parts of fraternities and sororities within that Catholic church. And so they walk through the streets as well, giving out gifts and walking. And it really is a beautiful thing to see and experience. But still, a lot of us, when we see that hooded, it looks the same. There is apprehension for some Black Americans. Well, of course. And even though I've never seen one in person, my parents have, but I have mm. never seen one in person. I know what it looks like and I know what it represents. So I can only imagine going to another country and seeing this. Of course, you're going to have that visceral reaction to it because you're not even understanding what it is, but you understand the image of what's embedded in you. And so if your children never saw that and didn't have those images, then they're more of curiosity. So I love that comparison because I think that while certainly we can't ignore our history, at least giving them that time to experience things before learning about it and knowing about that history to have a different takeaway from it. Right. No, you're absolutely correct. How does Spain respond to you and your family? Because it's a treat when you were talking about meeting with parents and the children attending school. So how was that acclimation to living in Spain and being part of the community as a family? I feel like the response was actually quite beautiful. I feel like there were so many people that were very friendly. Because we live in the south of Spain, it's very similar to the southern culture in America. Very friendly, very open, everyone knows everyone. And so that was kind of the response we got. And so that helped us be able to integrate better because they were so willing to teach us and take us out to different restaurants and give us suggestions of where we should go and just so many things. And a lot of those things and those stories are in my book. But yeah, I feel like we got a beautiful and great response from the people of Spain that we've met so far. I know you're in southern Spain, but what city in particular are you in? So the Sevilla province. We're about 30 minutes away from the city of Sevilla. Ah, okay. I have a group going to Spain in October, and we are going to spend a couple of days in that area. So we're actually going to fly into Madrid. And we're doing like a road trip and stopping along the way from Madrid all the way to the south to Cadiz. And so we're going to have a professor meet us in southern part of Spain and Mm -hmm. connect the Black history of Spain. And, you know, of course, there are the Moors, but also we're going to delve into Spain's participation in the transatlantic slave trade. And there are some ports and things there and references there for Black history in that sense. So we have a professor that's going to meet us around that area. So we'll be in Jerez, we'll be in Seville, we'll be in Cadiz. 
we'll be in Grenada. So we're doing a road trip all the way from Madrid That's down amazing. to the south. So maybe I'll reach out. Y'all are going to have a great time. You're naming some of the most beautiful parts of Andalusia that y'all are going to. So. It's interesting to compare the southern parts of the United States and southern Spain. But I think when you go to smaller places outside of big, big bustling cities is where you find that people are a little different because they have a slower paced life, just like it is here. It's not as populated. So how have your children been in school? Are they taking English classes? Or did they have to jump in and start to learn Spanish right away to participate in class? Not at all. So what we did was to call total integration. They are attending a local school here. And so when they first came, they accepted them into the school and they weren't required to know or speak any Spanish. It just naturally happened them learning being in, with other kids. But I do remember they would pull them to the side and did one-on-one Spanish lessons with the children. I don't know if all schools do that, but the school that our children go to did that. And that was an amazing thing that really helped them as well. So what kind of feedback have your children given you since they've been living in Spain? They've given us great feedback. I feel like they're a little bit patriotic, you know, patriotic towards Spain because they spent a latter part of their lives here. And so they love it here. They love their friends. And so that's number one for my husband and I, their happiness and their safety. And did they quickly acclimate? Well, they left the United States at a pretty early age. But Mm -hmm. how was that transition period for them? To me, I feel like it happened so quickly. I would say within three to four months, they were everybody, like the entire family, we were into a swing. Still learning, still acclimating, but just into a swing of comfortable enough to get around. And so it only took for us personally a few months for everybody and especially kids to get acclimated. Had you been traveling with your family while you were in the military or you had your children when you came out of the military? Our oldest child, he was the only one that kind of got most of the military experience. He lived in Turkey with us. And then we've visited and traveled different parts of Mexico. So it's mainly our oldest son that has been exposed to the traveling before we moved to Spain. What was it about Spain? Why did you choose Spain from the different places that you had visited or in that decision to leave the United States? It happened after my husband decided to separate from the military as well. We made that decision together to leave the military so that we can be together and kind of build that family unit and not have to always be away from each other. So he got a job opportunity based off of his military career, a job opportunity here in Spain. So that's how it started. And then when we came here, Javon, honestly, we just fell in love. And then that was really all she wrote. We came here with the job opportunity and literally just fell in love. Our family fell in love and we said, okay, this is home. Do you see yourself staying in Spain or do you think you'll move to another country or even return to the United States? Great question. I can say that I don't know what the future holds, but my husband and I are both 36 years old. I'm at the point where I want to settle down, you know, and settlement for my children as well. I definitely, our entire family see ourselves being here for the long haul. Now, I don't know what the future holds. We're not opposed to possibly living in another country, but do I see ourselves going back to the United States? Probably not to live. Definitely not to live. To visit family, of course, but to live, no. 
And I leave this last little analogy with you is that I remember because I grew up in South Florida, I had so many different friends from different parts of the world, from the Philippines, from Puerto Rico, just different parts. And I would see their family and they didn't speak a lick of English, but they came to America with this dream. And then over the years, I would see how they would become patriotic to the United States. They would have the flag. I now see myself as a patriotic immigrant towards Spain. This country just provided opportunity and a beautiful life for our family that we wouldn't have had in the States. Very interesting. So there's economic advantages living in Spain. Oh, for sure, because the cost of living here is a lot cheaper than it is in the United States. Is that because of where you are or would you say it in Spain in general? Definitely in general. Being in the South, it is a little bit cheaper than it would be in the North. But in general, this overall country, the cost of living is much cheaper. So before we go, what are your top three tips for anyone, especially uh, Black American, considering becoming an expat? Number one would be don't be afraid to step outside of your comfort zone. My second would be to do your research. And then the three would be to integrate. Wonderful having the conversation with you. And so I want to make sure I connect my audience with you. How can they find out more about your book and your blog and your travel adventures? Yes. So thank you so much. So please just go to my website, author Joy E. Glenn, two N's, authorjoyeglenn.com. My family, we have a YouTube channel out called AG3 Family. Please check that out because we showcase our lives and our traveling and all those things. When we come back, I've got the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, check it out and follow us on social media. And don't forget to join the Travel Club. We go many places, domestic and international. And we want to make sure that you're on board and you're experiencing these wonderful opportunities with us. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, food, music, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. When we talk about culture, we talk about ways in which it shapes us. It shapes the society. And there is an element of the society that has certainly shaped our culture in the past. And I definitely think we need to move them forward for the future as well, because What do they say? If you don't know your past, you're doomed to repeat it, but we also have to celebrate it as well. So I have the honor and pleasure to speak with David A. Peterson, Jr., the executive director at the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. So we're talking about the Pullman Porters and the Pullman Porter Museum today. Hello, David, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Good day. Good day. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You're also a global ambassador of cultural economic development, serving as a liaison between generations to bring about social and economic advancement in all communities. So that kind of supports the statement that I was talking about, our past and bringing it to our present. Um, Absolutely. There's a term for that called Sankofa. 
And that is exactly what that means, you know, just to kind of bring present the old. Yeah. And it's a Ghanaian word, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the Pullman Porters because the museum honors and celebrates them. And unfortunately, I think that some of us may not know a lot about the Pullman Porters. These gentlemen who we more affectionately champion as the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters literally changed the world. The reason that we champion them as the BSCP is because that is who they were after they humanized themselves collectively. And they were able to do that because they met a young man by the name of Asa Philip Randolph, who literally charged them and appealed to their manhood to stand up for themselves. Prior to that, they were just considered Pullman porters, even more derogatorily as George, named after George Pullman. So they were just looked at as numbers, pieces of machinery, if you will. But it was when they became a union in 1925, these gentlemen literally stood up and showed that they had a spine and a backbone and forced and demanded change within their working environments, which then gave them the confidence to take that fight a little further into their communities, into their country. And now we have the civil rights movement and the rest is history. And they were serving in what capacity when they were called George, like who's George and what were they the porters of? They were the porters of the Pullman rail cars. Pullman, you know, he revolutionized the sleeping car and, you know, it was basically a hotel on wheels. And these gentlemen were literally centerpieces on that train. So you had the Pullman porters, you had the dining car waiters, and you had the maids. And they all literally came on these trains that George Pullman leased out to different rail companies in order to travel around the country. And I think this has a lot to do as we recently celebrated Labor Day, but I think it has a lot to do with Labor Day as well, or Labor laws, because a lot of times African-Americans were not compensated, so they only worked on tips. Was this the case with the Pullman porters? They did have a wage. It was just very, very small. But Pullman, we must say for the record, he was the first gentleman to hire ex-slaves and you know really give them their just due. I remember seeing a scene in the movie X, Malcolm X, and he was at one point a porter. And it was then that, I mean, I knew a little bit about the Pullman Porters, but that movie gave me more of an insight to what they endured and how they actually worked during that time, because he talked about that in Spike Lee included that in the movie and talked about how uh, Malcolm X was a porter during that time. Absolutely. That was a very important detail that I'm glad that he included. So... A. Philip Randolph. Who is A. Philip Randolph? Because we're talking about the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. Well, Asa Philip Randolph was a gentleman born in Crescent, Florida, not too far outside of Jacksonville. And he actually became a member of Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated while he's in college and really began his career in Harlem, New York as a newspaper publisher. The name of his publication was The Messenger. And that's where he really gained the name, the affectionate name, uh, by the U.S. Attorney General as the most dangerous Negro in the United States. (laughs) Hmm. So here's a gentleman that had the capacity to speak and write in a manner that crossed all socioeconomic and ethnic boundaries and lines, if you will. There were people who were of his hue and people who were not of his hue who could not stand next to him in the literary world. So, you know, he he had such an uncanny ability to paint these pictures that really, really made people think. And it wasn't until he created this piece about the Pullman Porters that they found out who he was. And then, you know, like from there, once again, like we say, the rest is history. But this is a gentleman that literally should be credited as one of the most impactful 
organizers of our time. You know, he wasn't necessarily the most popular, but he was absolutely the most impactful. And that's the importance, you know, because this gentleman's blueprint gave us a new entrance into the labor unions. It gave us the blueprint for all of the civil rights movements that we saw take place on all of the famous marches. And more importantly, he gave us an opportunity to articulate ourselves and create conversations that led to negotiations that in some cases led to executive orders written specifically by presidents. And you said earlier that he really helped to organize the African-Americans to the America's labor movement, especially as it was relating to the Pullman Porter. So did they have their own union, the African-American railroad employees? They did. In 1925, August 25th, about 200 porters from Chicago took a train to Harlem, New York, and they met at the Elks Lodge in Harlem, New York, not too far from the Apollo Theater now. And that is where they had their first meeting, where they literally organized the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, Dining Car Waiters, and Maids. That was when the union was founded, but it wasn't until 12 years later in 1937 that they received a charter under the American Federation of Labor. They're the first and only Black labor union to receive a charter under the American Federation of Labor. And that proof of concept not only impacted African-Americans, but opened the door for Hispanic porters, Asian porters who were Filipino, and even laid a blueprint for the new way to organize even white unions. You know, that's why he later on became the vice president of the AFL-CIO. It's fantastic because, you know, as we talk about culture and how it impacts so many different parts of our life, and when the last statement says of sometimes politics and strife, these are the things that we're talking about, but it sets the stage. It lays the foundation of things that continually will change the culture of a society. So these things are extremely important. And so I'm happy that there is this museum right here in Chicago. Now, I know you here on Sirius XM 141, you may be listening in any part of the country, but but the museum is right here in Chicago. And so now you're understanding the significance as to why it's here in Chicago. But let's talk about the museum itself and what we can expect to see and experience at the museum. Well, the museum is a 27-year-old cultural institution founded by Dr. Lynn Hughes in 1995. So February 25th will actually be 28 years old. And we are America. We are the world's first and only Black labor history museum located in Chicago's first and only National Park Service site, Pullman National Monument. We're literally in the town of Pullman, where the cars were built, where the wheels for the cars were built. And, you know, that's what gives us a significant placement in history right now, because the Porters post Plessy versus Ferguson weren't even allowed to live in that neighborhood. So we look at it as a badge of honor to erect such a museum during this time period. You know, we are, like I say, global ambassadors of cultural economic development. So we are a proof of concept that one small institution can make an impact in a neighborhood on the far south side of Chicago, commonly known as a low-income area, an urban area where, you know, pretty much all of the same things that are synonymous across the country are still the same here. But what we've been able to become is a beacon of light. So because we have so much going on, we're forced to do more with less. So we're not afforded the luxury to just be a building with pictures or even just a museum. We are literally a transformative space where people come in, have the opportunity to have that conversation with themselves. What contribution did I have in some of these ills? There's some older people that come in and say, wow, I didn't even know that this is going on during my time period, during my lifetime. Or some people are inspired. You know, We have a youth and young adult division called Museum 44, where hip hop meets history. It's actually named after 44th president because we felt that we wanted to represent our young through a presidential lens, you know, so the confidence that came from seeing Barack Obama become president 
literally changed our trajectory. We just took it a step further by incorporating that into a programming productions aspect of the museum. So we're now at the cusp of our expansion. You know, after 28 years, we've outgrown our space. We need more space. We have more exhibit space to put out. We need more space for programming. So now that's what the big hoopla is about now. We're getting ready for our second phase of the museum. And it will literally be the Jesse Jackson Civil Rights Wing. I'm really excited about these changes and this growth, and it's long overdue. <laughs> so I'm really excited about that. And so I was reading regarding the monument because you have, and you touched on this a little bit, the historic Pullman district that has now been designated as a national monument site under the National Park Service. What area are we talking about in Chicago that encompasses that? This is the far south side of Chicago in the South Lakefront region. So we are 103rd Street on the north, 115th Street on the south, Cottage Grove, which is the IC tracks, all the way to the Bishop Ford Expressway. That is the designated area, according to the U.S. Department of Interior, that has been considered Pullman National Monument, signed in executive order using the Antiquities Act by the 44th President Barack Obama. I continually applaud President Obama because he implemented so many designations during his presidency through the National Park Services that celebrate African-American history and heritage. And it's such a wonderful thing. And these are lasting legacies that we can only continue to grow and build upon. So I'm really happy to see that the National Pullman Porter Museum is part of that. Keeping the legacy alive is extremely important. So the website is aprpullmanportermuseum.org. Make sure you check it out. See all of the wonderful things they have on the website to give you the information. And make sure you look out for the wonderful events that will be coming up in this process over the next year. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad you're in where I currently live. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, we look forward to seeing you. And hopefully we can do another follow-up interview about that. Oh, certainly will. You have an open invitation to do that. Well, again, David, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing this rich history and this legacy. And I just love the direction that it's going in. I'm really looking forward to that. Thanks again for joining me today. Thank you so much. Take care. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information.